The stairway to Christian ministry is not a grand staircase, but it is a back stairwell that leads down to servants' quarters. Not my own words. Somebody has said the stairway to Christian ministry is not a grand staircase, but a back stairwell that leads all the way down to the servants' quarters. It's kind of been a theme, hasn't it, these last few weeks as we've had uh, Will, Will who opened our service this morning, as we've had Will's ordination. We told the children, didn't we, over a couple of Sundays that as Will enters Christian ministry, there is no big red throne for Will to sit on. Some of you have been through these doors here on my right. If you go through those doors, you are, go through the doors and turn left, you are into the guts of the hotel, aren't you? It is not a pretty sight. Back stairwells that lead down to the places only housekeeping knows about and sees. Entering ministry is walking through a doorway to gospel service. Now here, here in the book of Acts, this gospel message that we've been hearing about, what is it? The gospel is the message about Jesus as the risen Messiah. Rejected and killed, but now raised and enthroned at God's right hand and offering forgiveness to all the world. And Acts is showing us week by week the gospel is for everyone. It's for the people who killed the king. The gospel is for Jews in the south of the land. It is for the northerners, the Samaritans. Last week it reaches the Ethiopians. It is for everyone in all the earth. And now in chapter 9, in front of us this morning, the question is, how will that gospel go out to all the earth? Who will take it? What kind of man will carry it? Who will accept the mission? What will he be like? These verses that we read together, I guess at least parts of them are well known, aren't they? It is a famous passage. A famous passage for talking about somebody's dramatic change of mind and uh, an about turn on something. We say that he or she has had a Damascus Road experience like Saul. Maybe a direct encounter with God that changes everything. I want us to see this morning as we look at it that the point of this passage is much more about Paul's mission than it is his conversion. It's much more about what, gave, about what God gave Paul to do than even what God did to him. Friends, here, here's what Acts 9 shows us very simply. The message of a suffering saviour. That's the gospel, a suffering saviour. The message of a suffering Messiah will reach the ends of the earth in the mouth of a suffering preacher. That's how the gospel will go out. That's how God will do it. It was, it was true then, and it is true now, today. That information in front of you, the prayer news about our training at Trinity. Ben in America, Struan, Will, me, your elders, your deacons. Do you know what you should look for? Somebody who turns up to church and pretty quickly learns where the back entrance is. 
learns where the stairwell is that others don't see, where the heavy lifting is done, where, where the mess is. Someone who knows where the flack is for believing the gospel and who still goes there anyway. This is a chapter where God is teaching the church that the stairway to ministry, the stairway to preaching and teaching the gospel to the world leads down, not up, down. That's what we're looking at this morning. And how it happens here in chapter 9 is amazing. One commentator has said that Saul is like a wild beast that God breaks in, bridles him. And there are very good reasons in the text this morning for that picture. So I want us to think of Saul like this. As, as we see how God spreads the gospel, two things for us to see. Two animal things. Let's look at him as, number one, the wolf who became a sheep. And then number two, the sheep who became a shepherd. What I want us to do is just go through the whole story. I want to show you how it works. And then I want to draw out three applications for us. Here's the first thing to see. Number one, the wolf who became a sheep. You, you maybe didn't notice, but this whole story is actually full of wild animal words. If you look back at chapter 8, verse 3, you'll see the heading over chapter 8 in your Bible. Saul ravages the church. There it is in verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That word ravage, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's used in a translation of Psalm 80 to speak of wild boars entering a vineyard and devastating it, leaving it decimated. It's a rampaging word, isn't it? It's a tearing something limb from limb word. Saul is like a crazed animal in his frenzy, going from place to place to find Christians. Look at verse 21 of our chapter, chapter 9. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? That phrase, made havoc, it could be translated as mauled. Mauled. He mauled the believers in Jerusalem. He's like a wolf ravaging his prey. And even more clearly, chapter 9, verse 1, look at it. Saul still breathing out threats and murder. Isn't that an evocative phrase? Makes you think of a bull, perhaps, pawing the ground, snorting and breathing heavily as it prepares for the next charge. Feel the rage in this man. Feel the rage and see the extent of it. What we have in chapter 9 is Paul like an assassin. Hatching a plot here for complete liquidation of God's people. He's on his way to Damascus. He's armed with written authority to extradite these followers of Jesus. This blasphemer, Jesus. To bring these people back to justice in Jerusalem. John Stott's word. Saul's heart was filled with hatred. And his mind was poisoned by prejudice. A poisoned mind, a heart full of hatred. When you read through the book of Acts, you get to chapter 26. Saul, or Paul as he becomes known, Paul will say that he was possessed here by a raging fury. That's his own description of himself. A raging fury. 
And Acts is showing us here a man half deranged, half human, half wild beast, almost out of his mind. His hatred of Jesus and his people is so strong. He is a savage wolf seeking to devour God's people. And so it means, doesn't it, the events of his conversion are the most amazing turnaround, the most stunning turnaround. There he is in verse 3, heading for Damascus, his heart racing, his emotions high, his intent for blood. A journey that would have taken approximately a week. And before he gets there, he is an entirely new man. Completely remade and made new. New heart, new mind, new mission. All, All because Saul meets the risen Lord Jesus. Meets the risen Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. The same sight that Stephen Stephen saw at the end of chapter 7. The same sight that led to the blood-curdling screams of blasphemy. That same Jesus now stops Saul right in his tracks. See it in verse 4. Saul, Saul, a direct address by his name. Why are you persecuting me? And in the flash of light, so dazzling and unexpected, he falls to the ground. But friends, I want you to notice verse 5. Notice what Saul says. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Do you see the change in that one word? Here are the tectonic plates that have shifted under Saul's world. There it is in that verse. There's the decisive moment. If, if you look back in verse 1, we're told that Saul had been wanting to murder the Lord's disciples. But of course at that stage, Saul didn't think they were the Lord's disciples. They were Jesus' disciples, yes, but not the Lord's. God was the Lord. Jesus was just a man, an ordinary man. That's why Saul was furious, you see. He was incensed, incensed to the the core of his being, to see somebody like Stephen say, Jesus is more than just a man. To hear Stephen say in chapter 7 that he sees Jesus at God's right hand, sharing in the divine glory, that is blasphemy. These followers of Jesus have been deceived. He was just an ordinary man. But now look what happens. Verse 5, who are you, Lord? In the rest of the chapter, we just keep getting this repeated emphasis on that one word. Verse 10, the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord. Verse 15, the Lord. Verse 17, verse 28, verse 31. Do you see how it works? Again and again, Jesus has become the Lord. That is what conversion is. That's all it is. Realizing that he is more than a man, that I am just a man. Realizing that Jesus is Lord and I am not. You are not. Jesus is Lord. And so a wolf becomes a sheep. A wolf becomes a sheep. Just notice, it's really interesting to see that All this animal imagery now continues, but instead of wild animal or savage animal, 
Saul becomes like an animal that has been broken in. Instead of rushing around proudly with all his plans, he's on the floor, verse 6. He has to be told to get up. Now he gets instructions from the divine master he had denied. Go into the city and you will be told what to do. He gets up and realizes he's blind. Look at the language. They led him by the hand like a sheep, like a little lamb. Look at the incredible contrast with verse 2. What does Saul want to do? He wants to lead Christians out of Damascus, bound like prisoners, and instead he has led himself like a prisoner into Damascus. John Stott says, He had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and in the fullness of his prowess, a self-confident opponent of Christ. Instead, he is led into the city, humble, blind, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. Isn't it amazing? Look at the wolf who becomes a sheep. Number two, what happens to Saul the sheep? Well, incredibly, more than that, he becomes Saul the shepherd. Look at the sheep who becomes a shepherd. What, what, what you get in the rest of the story is one sheep joining the sheepfold... He's introduced to the rest of the flock, isn't he? And of, of course, there's great nervousness and astonishment. This man coming in, a wolf in our midst, surely he's going to tear us limb from limb. Verse 13, Ananias, first of all, is pretty unsure. Then the Jerusalem disciples, is he a wolf in sheep's clothing? Can we really be sure this is not just part of an elaborate plot, a, a hoax to trick us to, to get more of us carted off to execution? And the Lord has to intervene again, doesn't he? Emotions are running so high. This time speaking to Ananias to reassure him, it's okay, he's the real deal, verse 15. Saul's change is genuine. And friends, the way that God here comforts his people and encourages them to accept Saul is not just by telling them that one wolf has become a sheep, not just that, but by telling them this sheep has a special job to do. He's going to be a shepherd, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul has a new mission, doesn't he now? Not mass extermination, but worldwide evangelization. And it is going to cost him. It's going to cost him. The rest of chapter 9 we get just a little snapshot of both of those things, don't we? He's going around the synagogues just like he planned to do, but instead of dragging the Christians out, he's joining them, arguing that Jesus is the Son of God. The very thing that used to enrage him, he now opens his mouth to say to others. And as he does it, he's suffering, lowered down through a hole in the wall, through a ba in a basket, attempts on his life, right from the very start of his Christian life. The sheep who became a suffering shepherd. So friends, for you and I this morning, what does the book of Acts want you and I to do with this? It's a gripping story, isn't it? A wonderful story. But what about us? I want to give us three things to see. Three things. Number one, as to Paul, so to us. 
As to Paul, so to us. What I mean here is that what happened to Saul or to Paul, what, what happened to him has to happen to you and to me. As to him, so to us. I don't mean the bright light, the flash from heaven. That, that doesn't have, have to happen to us, does it? The reason I say that is because it doesn't happen again to anybody else in the book of Acts from here on. Doesn't happen before it either in terms of somebody being converted. Now, the reason for the, that particular style of event is that Saul was not just becoming a follower of Christ, he was becoming an apostle of Christ. An apostle was somebody who had physically met the risen Lord Jesus, who had been in his presence, so that you could then trust their words and their message about Jesus. Paul is brought face to face with Christ here so that from here on everybody will know he's the real deal. You can trust what he says. Actually, Acts wants us to see. No, what happened to him in that sense does not need to happen to you. And maybe almost certainly never will happen to you. Don't seek a Damascus Road experience or think you have to have one. But something else happened to Saul that does have to happen to all of us. Humbled to the point of recognizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Isn't that the universal thing? That's all conversion is. That's what it means. You, living Lord Jesus Christ, you are king, not me. You are not just a figure in history, not just another wandering prophet with good ideas and exemplary morals. No, you are seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and all power and all dominion and all the brightness of heaven's glory belongs to you. You are Lord, not me. Friends, that means wolves still become sheep today. Wolves still become sheep today. It's still possible. Happens all the time. Do you believe it? Do you remember Rosaria Butterfield? I know some of us have read some of her books. I've told you about Rosaria Butterfield before. She was a a prominent, well-established lesbian professor of English literature and women's studies at a university in the United States. She was a seasoned writer, an advocate of queer theory. She was politically leftist. Her life was happy, meaningful, and full. I despised Christians, she says. And then somehow, I became one. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and my wrath. Now, what happens to a woman like that when she comes face to face with Jesus? When she discovers who he is? Through the simple friendship of a Christian and through his constantly open home and the warmth of a church family, Rosaria Butterfield began to read the Bible. I devoured the Bible the way a glutton devours food, and I fought against it with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. The 
church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. No blinding light. Took years. Years. But so like Saul. Yes? And it happens. All around us you see this happening. Here's Alex Hanna uh, working with UCCF, writing in uh, this UCCF magazine, Impact, telling us the story of a, a Freshers Week event. I sat beside a third-year student who had come to nearly every other event in the week. I asked him what he thought about the talk, and he told me he hated God, hated Christians, and hated Christianity. I asked him if he had ever looked at the Bible for himself as an adult. I showed him the Uncover Gospel. He agreed to read it with me. We planned to meet the following week. A few days later, I was speaking at the CU, and I was surprised to see him there. I spoke about what the CU is, what it's not, encouraging them all to find and get plugged into a church. At the end of the talk, he came up to me and asked if he could add another item to the agenda when we next met up. He asked me to help him find a church. One of several stories that happen all the time throughout the land as students get given, through their Christian friends, a Bible, a chance to meet, a chance to talk. Now here's the thing, friends, this morning. We mustn't confuse the essence of conversion. Don't confuse the essence of conversion with the drama of conversion. It's easy to get the drama and the reality the wrong way around, isn't it? And to think that if there's no drama, maybe there's no conversion. Uh, I, I grew up in the kind of church background, growing up in Northern Ireland when the troubles uh, were still raging in the land. I, I grew up hearing all the time dramatic conversions, testimonies of lives wonderfully, radically changed, terrorists about to pull the trigger or uh, detonate the bomb, and Christ met them and their lives were changed. And I used to think, I don't have a very dramatic conversion story. I haven't been trying to plant a bomb or do something like that. It's all irrelevant. Irrelevant. God deals with each person differently. Some of you younger folks here this morning, maybe you're wondering if you're really a Christian because it's all you've ever known. You don't feel like you have had any kind of dramatic conversion experience. The point is not how or when you were converted, but what it means to be converted. Jesus is Lord, not me. Do you think Jesus is God's King or not? If you've always believed that and you love him as God's King and your King, then friends, if that's all you've ever known, what a privilege. Thank God for the glorious privilege of a Christian home. What happened to Saul has happened to you. It's very likely that there are others of us here. You're not sure. You wonder whether you're a Christian. Am I? Am I? Maybe. I'm not sure. Don't pray for the, the bright flashing light. Don't look for the audible voice from heaven. Ask God instead for the broken heart and the bent knee. The, the door into God's kingdom is a low-hanging arch. You, you do not strut your way in. You kneel 
And you come with open hands and a hungry heart knowing you need a saviour. A real encounter with God begins by just being deeply humbled by Jesus. And so it always is. Friends, some of us here today have children far from Christ. Not, not wolves, maybe, but lost sheep, wandering sheep. And I know how you pray for them. God can do it. God can reach them and find them and call them. Call them by name and bring them back. Here's my second application. Number two. As with Jesus, so with us. As to Paul, so to us. Number two. As with Jesus, so with us. Do you remember what Philip taught the Ethiopian last week we looked at? What did he teach him from Isaiah 53? Who was the prophet talking about? Jesus, the suffering Messiah. The king who entered Jerusalem on a donkey, not a stallion. The lamb who was led away to be slaughtered. If the Lord we serve was a suffering Lord, a silent lamb, is it any wonder that when that same Lord reaches down and claims men and women to belong to him and makes them part of his church, is it any wonder that he makes us like him? Sheep being led to our deaths. As with Jesus, so with us. See, from this point onwards in his ministry, Saul, as he becomes known as Paul, is going to tell these churches that he plants, he's going to say to them, follow my example, do as I do. Follow my example, for I follow Christ's example. Be prepared to suffer. And I think the reason for that is so important for us to see, friends. The reason is that so that the message being spoken and the messenger fit together perfectly. They have to fit. See, think about it. Is there anything more dubious than a, a bold man selling you a cure for boldness? Would you send your child for swimming lessons to somebody who can't swim? A bankrupt person telling you how to launch your business. A proud person telling you about a humble saviour. Somebody who looks after number one, telling you about the Lord Jesus who is number one. They don't fit, do they? The message and the messenger contradict. And so God has this tactic, a very unusual way of operating, that he often breaks and bruises and fractures the vessel so that its treasure can shine and be seen. Look at verse 16 again. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Why? Because he's going to carry the message of a suffering saviour. Maybe God will do that to you. Because as with the Lord Jesus, so with those who belong to him. Somebody has said the message of Christ crucified can only be preached by a crucified man. 
Do you know these words? When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying as he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses. Yes, God knows what he's about. Friends, do not fear the suffering of Christ's people. Do not fear it. It's easy to think, isn't it? It should not be so. It should not be, Lord. Shouldn't be so for me, shouldn't be so for you, we think. We think the stronger we are and the richer we are and the smarter we are and the more popular we are, all of those things, surely the more we are of those, the more Jesus will use us, right? And it is not so. Suffering will come. I wonder if suffering is on our doorstep in our schools for Christian children, for Christian parents, in our workplaces. The issue of sexuality and gender, biology is increasingly bigotry. Maybe just for you in your ordinary week, there is immense cost to following Christ. As with Him, so with us. It's a final application here. I want to finish with this. It's, it's not just that as he suffered, so we suffer. It's also the case that what happens to us, in a sense, happens to him. As to us, so to him. Look how closely the Lord's people are, are identified with him. Did, did you notice that remarkable answer that Jesus gives to Saul back in verse 5? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And he said... I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. (coughs) Amazing, isn't it? As far as Saul was concerned, he wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? Jesus was just an ill-informed Jewish prophet who'd got himself on the wrong side of the lawn. He was lying rotting in a tomb, having had his just desserts from the authorities. Now, who Saul was persecuting were his followers. Those poor people who insisted on carrying on those blasphemies. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. So friends, what a beautiful lesson to learn. What you do to them, Saul, what you do to them, Saul, you do to me. To persecute them is to persecute me. As to us, as we are persecuted, so to Jesus. Do you know know what the Apostle Paul's favorite phrase is? Two words, and he uses them again and again in all his letters. You find them, they crop up again and again. So often you miss them. Two words, in Christ. In Christ. I am in Christ. You are in Christ. In Christ we have redemption through his blood and so on and so on. Again and again he keeps saying we are in Christ. Why? Sinclair Ferguson says, it all comes from here. 
how somebody is converted, the womb in which they come to faith leaves an indelible mark on them for life. It's true of Saul. It's true for all of us. It shapes the whole way we view the world. And so here for Saul, his his very conversion came about as he realized that what you do to Christ's people, you do to Christ. They are one. We are in him. Will was talking a bit about this, wasn't he, to the children, about how, how closely we're joined. Think about what it means to be part of a family. My wife tells me that she's still recovering all these years later from the trauma of seeing her dad dance at the school disco. <laughs> Can you imagine it? What he was doing to himself, embarrassing himself, though he didn't think he was, what he was doing to himself, he was doing to her. Go to any school nativity play or any parents award evening. You can work out who the parents are of the children simply by watching the parents' faces during all the activities on the stage. There is an organic unity that cannot hide itself. When someone who belongs to us wins, we win. When they lose, we lose. When they suffer, we suffer. Let me ask you this morning, wherever you are, do you know that Jesus is that close to you? That close. When you suffer for his name, persecuted for his name, what happens to you happens to him. It's such an amazing thing. Sometimes we just need visual aids, don't we, to see it. I've tried to give us ones there, the, the disco dad the proud parent. We need visual aids. We get it. But friends, this morning, here's another visual aid right in front of us. Bread and wine. How close are you to Jesus this morning? You are as close to Jesus as the bread in your hand, as the wine in your mouth. And friends, more than that, more than that, you are as close to him as the bread in your body. As the wine in your body, that is why Christ gave it to us, to show us union with Christ in picture form. You are that close to him. What does Paul later say? The only other thing that comes close is the union of a man and a woman in marriage. And that is what we are like with Christ. Come what may to you and to me, we are his. And friends, here is where we find him. Here is where we find him, down the back stairs, in the servants' quarters, on a cross. Amen.